Let's take our Bibles and open to John chapter 4 today. We were able last week to look at a man who was radically changed by the power of God. And today we'll be looking at a woman who met Jesus and never thirsted again. I'm so glad that Michelle sang what she sang this morning. Uh, have you met the stranger of Galilee? Is he a, still a stranger in your life, or do you know him today as your Savior? Uh, these are encounters with Christ that we're looking at on Sunday mornings. And uh, it's a familiar but wonderful message here in John 4 that tells us how the Lord had a conversation with a woman in Samaria, and she believed, and she evangelized her entire village of Sychar. The context in the gospel here, in John chapter 3, Jesus in the first half had an encounter with Nicodemus, and he told him that he needed to be born again, literally born from above, he needed to be saved. Here in John 4, Jesus will witness to an unnamed woman in the Bible, she's simply known as a woman of Samaria. These two encounters are very different. We're only going to focus on her this morning, but I want to illustrate the power of the gospel in both cases where Jesus approached each of them differently. The Bible Knowledge Commentary points to that difference. They say the Samaritan woman contrasts sharply with Nicodemus. He was seeking, she was indifferent. He was a respected ruler, she was an outcast. He was serious, she was flippant. He was a Jew, she a despised Samaritan. He was presumably moral, she was immoral. He was orthodox, she was heterodox. He was learned in religious matters and she was ignorant. Yet in spite of all the differences between this church man and this woman of the world, they both needed to be born again. People today need Jesus. Those who are respected, those who are rejected. Jesus came for all. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. We need to start looking at people the same way that Jesus looked at them. Everyone is, is lost. Our only hope is found in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he died to save us from our sin. So as we approach this message this morning, you may be here, you may be listening, and you've never trusted Christ as your personal Savior, like Nicodemus, like this woman, like every one of us, because we're all born sinners, you need to be saved. And Jesus offers you salvation freely. You may have already trusted Christ as your Savior. And yet as we read this account, you will sense this greater burden that you should have to continue being faithful, witnessing to a lost and dying world. This passage is here for all of us. The first point I'd like to bring out, Jesus went out of his way. He left Judea. There are a lot of verses in our text this morning, so let's follow carefully. In John 4, verses 1 through 3. When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee. Jesus and John the Baptist were baptizing disciples. And the Pharisees noticed that and they thought, how can we break this up? How can we cause a division between those who are following John and those who are following Christ? And they said, Jesus was baptizing more people than John. And nothing like a little bit of jealousy and competition to cause unrest. 
How did John respond to that potential divisive news? He said at the end of chapter 3, verse 30, he must increase, I must decrease. Jesus responded by going north into Galilee. Mark gives us a little more insight in Mark 1.14. It says, John was put in prison and Jesus entered Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. So that's, that, that was the end result of, of what was going on. They put John in prison and Jesus continued ministering in Galilee. So he left, for Judea, he left Judea. He went through Samaria, verses 4 through 9. And he must needs go through Samaria. And we'll talk about that must needs go because that's often a, a fascinating thought. Why did he need to go through Samaria? Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away into the city to buy meat. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. So why did Jesus need to go through Samaria? It wasn't because that was faster. It was a shorter route. But you'll notice at the end of the account, Jesus spent two more days in Sychar. I submit that he was compelled by obedience to the will of his father. That's why he needed to go through Samaria. All the way through his life, we sense that desire to obey his father, submission to the will of the father. As a boy, when Mary and Joseph returned to Jerusalem, they found Jesus was in the temple. And he asked them in Luke 2.49, How is it that ye sought me? Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? In the text here, in verse 34, Jesus said to his disciples who told him to eat something, they had brought back food from the city, he said, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. In John chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus will answer the criticism of healing a man on the Sabbath by saying, My father worketh hitherto, and I work. In John 6, 38, he says, I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And in John 9, 4, he'll say, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is yet day. The night cometh when no man can work. Jesus was motivated throughout his life. Everything he did was according to the will of his father. That's why he must needs go through Samaria to this well to this woman, so that she would be saved and the gospel would reach her entire village. There are several motivating factors for us to go and take the gospel to the ends of the earth. We hear them in missions conferences. We go because of the need of mankind. People need to be saved. They need to hear the gospel. But they aren't aware of that need oftentimes, and they're not so happy when we go and tell them of their need. We also go because of our love for lost souls. But often they reject our love. They'll shun us. 
But on this third reason, we go because it is the will of God. We go because he told us to go. Then we'll be obedient. And it won't matter what the response is from those to whom we witness. We'll continue to serve. We'll continue to witness. We'll continue to love because it is God's will. And we need to obey him. That obedience to do the Father's will motivated Jesus to push through physical barriers. Difficult to understand. The God-man, he's omnipotent as God, and yet he's taken on himself the form of humanity. And as a man, Jesus was tired. He was hungry. He was thirsty. Verse 6 says that Jesus was wearied with his journey. They'd been walking from Jerusalem to Sychar. When we look at these distances, we think, well, I just hop in the car on a bicycle and I'm there in, in no time. This was 55 miles. It would have taken at least two days for the disciples and Jesus to get there. It was the sixth hour now. Jesus, or John is using the Roman reckoning for time, so it was 6 p.m. The disciples went into the city to find food. He was weary. He sat down, and yet he was doing what the Father wanted him to do. It's easy to grow weary in serving. It's normal. We wear out. What are we learning here? Don't quit. Think of what is ahead. Galatians 6, 9 says, Be not weary in well-doing, for in due season ye shall reap if we faint not. The obedience to do the will of the Father motivated him to ignore prejudicial barriers. The Jews were primarily residents of the southern area in Israel called Judea. To the north, Galilee was made up of the Gentiles, and in between those areas was an area where the Samaritans lived. And you have heard many things about how the Jews hated the Samaritans. This hatred by now had gone on for 550 years. When the ten northern tribes were taken captivity or captive into Assyria, some Jews were left in Israel. And the Assyrians brought back captives from other nations, introduced them to uh, these in, in this area, in, to the Jews here who were still there. And their children, as they married them, were called Samaritans. They were adding the gods of these other nations, these foreign nations, to the historic worship of Jehovah. By now, the hatred was so intense that the Pharisees prayed that no Samaritans would be a part of raising in the resurrection. The Jews would take a longer route. Instead of going through Samaria, they would cross over the Jordan River uh, to the east and then uh, going further to the north, cross back over. So they'd go through Perea and cross the Jordan twice just to get around this area that was hated and despised of people. Notice the reaction of the woman in verse 9. It shows that uh, this was highly unusual for a Jew, to talk to her and especially to ask for water. Samaritan women were considered by the Jews to be unclean all of the time. And to take a drink of water from her hand would have made Jesus unclean. The reaction of the disciples also shows that this was highly unusual. Verse 27, we haven't read it yet, but they marveled that he talked with the woman. So Jesus went out of his way to obey the will of the Father. 
He went through and not around Samaria. He had an appointment there with a woman who needed to be saved. Have you ever thought about what heaven is going to be like? Yeah, heaven is going to be filled with saved sinners. <laughs> John Wesley once dreamed a dream that he came to the gates of hell. And he knocked and asked the gatekeeper, are there any Roman Catholics here? And the gatekeeper said, oh yes, many. Any Church of England men? Yes, many. Presbyterians? Yes. Wesleyans? <laughs> Remember, this is John Wesley dreaming. And he says, many. Disappointed, he then found himself at the gates of heaven. And he asked the same questions. And the answer to each was, no. And he asked in surprise, whom have you here? The answer came back, we do not know of any of which you've named. The only name of which we know anything of is Christian. <laughs> we must go out of our way to reach others with the gospel. We need to push through those physical discomforts, those times that we're tired, to, to accomplish what God has told us to do. And we must set aside any prejudice that will keep us from telling others. He went out of his way. Secondly, he met her real need. There was a perceived need that she had, and that was for water that he, he needed to reveal. He, he, he used that to reveal her need of salvation. Verses 10 through 15. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith unto thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldst have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou this living water, that living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. So her perceived need of coming to that well was for physical water. But he spoke of some kind of a water that was different. This stranger didn't have any way to draw the water. The well would have been at that time, it's estimated, 75 to 150 feet deep. He had nothing to, to bring the water up. And he asked her for a drink, but he told her that he could provide her with living water. So why would he ask her for water? The satisfaction from that living water would come from within. It would be in the person, a well of water springing up in everlasting life. So he used her perceived need to reveal her need of salvation. Her, her real need included dealing with her sin. And he exposes it in verses 16 to 18. A lot of times we'll get around that. We don't want to make the gospel uncomfortable for people. We don't want to talk about what they've done wrong in their lives. Jesus didn't. He said, go call thy husband and come hither. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband, for thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband, in that saidst thou truly. So he asked her to call, call her husband to come. 
Her answer was true, but it was evasive. I have no husband. True. He told her that she had been married five times, was now living with another man, not her husband. Salvation needs to include an admission of guilt. The New Testament word is confession. It's from the Greek word hamalageo, to say the same thing. It's to agree with God that we are sinners, that we have broken his law, that we don't deserve his grace. She may have thought, as this conviction comes, this conversation is getting a little too personal. I think I'll change the subject. She said, you must be a prophet. I know how to argue religion. Let's talk about some controversial topics. Look at verses 19 through 21. The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Albert Barnes has an interesting comment on this. Nothing is more common than for sinners to change the conversation when it begins to bear too hard upon their consciences. And no way of doing it is more common than to direct it to some speculative inquiry having some sort of connection with religion as if to show that they're willing to talk about religion and don't wish to appear to be opposed to it. Her real need wasn't to find an answer to a common religious debate of the day. You know people who enjoy those kinds of questions, those endless religious debates, they ask the same questions, don't they? Why does God allow evil in the world? Is it fair for people who've never heard the gospel to be punished for eternity? We get those questions. We ought to do what Jesus did. He did not get sidetracked, did he? Look at verse 22. He taught her about true worship. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. Her worship was empty. Ye worship, ye know not what. When the Samaritans, remember, intermarried with other nations, they combined that false worship of gods from, from those nations into their own system of worship of Jehovah. It's what's called syncretism. It's melding different faiths together. And what a sad insight into the attempts at worship by lost men. Ye worship, ye know not what. We could look at all the religions of the world outside of Christianity and say the same thing today. You don't have a clue what you're even worshiping. There is no true worship when God is left out. It's time now for her to experience what genuine worship is. In the first half of verse 23, he says, But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And that's God's desire. He wants to be worshipped in spirit and in truth. And we see that in the rest of the verse. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. Talk about seeker-sensitive ministries. It's the Father who's seeking us. True worship is spiritual. It's internal. It's genuine. It's real. Verse 24, Jesus said, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. 
Worship does not consist of empty words and meaningless rituals. It's not what we do. It's who is the object of our worship. He gave her living water. He identified himself as the Messiah. Verses 25 and 26. The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. <laughs> Can you imagine his knowledge, of course, before this ever happened? And yet hearing her say, I know that someone is coming, and they call him the Christ, the Messiah. And when he has come, he will tell us all things. And we have this wonderful verse, verse 26. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. You'll notice those two words, I am in that verse, ego eimi. It's a theme that comes throughout the Gospel of John where Jesus says, I am, the seven great I am's in that book. They're words of divine identity. And she hears him say this. And she has a choice. What am I going to do? And she believed. She recognized him as the Messiah. Look at verses 27 through 30. And upon this came his disciples and marveled that he talked with the woman. Yet no man said, What seekest thou, or why talkest thou with her? The woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city and saith unto the men, Come see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? There's her confession. Then they went out of the city and came unto him. There's some indications in the text that show us that this woman genuinely was saved. She professed that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. She left her water pot behind. That was the reason that she had come out to the well. She went back without water, at least physical water. She forgot about her physical thirst. She had drunk of living water now, and she has become enthused about, enthused is a good word, enthusiasm is being, having God in you. She is enthused about telling other people this wonderful news. Jesus now, this living water, has become the most important thing in her life. And she had this desire to tell others. Sometimes we want to be thought well of by sinners, our neighbors, those who live without Christ. And we don't tell them or give them what they really need. We help them by giving good advice. We help them with perceived needs how to manage their finances, how to make sure that they, they have well-behaved children. We invite them to church activity sometimes. But we never ask them if they will accept Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. Their spiritual thirst will never be satisfied if we don't introduce them to Jesus Christ, who's the living water. He went out of his way. He met her real need and last, he went beyond the one to see the entire harvest field. Verses 31 to 34. In the meanwhile, his disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. But he said unto them, I have meat to eat that ye know not of. Therefore said the disciples one to another, Hath any man brought him aught to eat? Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me, and to finish his work.
Jesus saw what the disciples missed. He saw the real need of all mankind. He encouraged his disciples to catch this vision of man's need. And he says it in verse 35. Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest? Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. Some say he could have been pointing out the Samaritan women who had been, have been coming out to the well at that time of day. The woman, because of her reputation, had come out early to avoid that in a confrontation. But now maybe they're the ones coming out. Some say they're the men of the city who are coming out because of the woman's testimony. The Samaritans would have been wearing their, their white flowing robes, their head coverings of white. These are the fields, I believe, that Jesus is talking about that are white unto harvest. Time of grain harvest was four months away. The growth in the fields was still green. Jesus is saying the time to harvest the souls of men and women is now. Notice the wage for reaping. Verse 36, it's eternal fruit. He that reapeth receiveth wages and gathereth fruit unto life eternal. The joy of the harvest is shared by both sower and reaper, that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. It's not competition. You don't say, well, they passed that gospel track out from the other church. I'm just going to leave it alone. I'm going to. We're not in competition. This is God's kingdom. And herein is that saying true, one soweth and another reapeth. I sent you to reap that whereon ye bestowed no labor. Other men labored, and ye are entered into their labors. So he's saying some sow, some reap, and God is the one who brings the harvest. We all have a task in this harvest field of lost souls. We're to be faithful. There's no competition with other laborers. But in all of our efforts, God is the one who does the saving. And he is the one who deserves all the praise and all the glory for a lost sinner who is saved. He used a new convert to reach others. Isn't it amazing how when a person first gets saved, they're just so excited about things. They, they want to tell everybody. <laughs> and they expect everyone to do the same thing. After all, it's so easy to accept Christ as your savior. Just a confession of sin and the promises of God's word. And you want others to have that same joy of forgiveness that you have. Hers is a simple message. We see it in verse 29. It's also repeated in verse 39. In 29 she says, Come see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? You don't have to be an expert in theology to tell others about Christ, about what he's done. You don't have to... Wait until five years after your salvation to be able to tell someone else how they can know Christ as well. A child can understand the plan of salvation and respond. In verse 39, it was an effective message. It was a simple but effective message. Many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman, which testified, he told me all things that ever I did. It was because of her testimony that they came to faith in Christ as well. Jesus stayed himself 
for two more days, and more Samaritans were converted, verses 40 through the end, 42. So when the Samaritans were come unto him, they besought him that he would tarry with them, and he abode there two days. And many more believed because of his own word, and said unto the woman, Now we believe, not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves, and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. They besought Christ to stay, to tarry with them. Like the two on the road to Emmaus, they wanted him to stay, abide with us. He stayed for two days, many more believed because of his own word. It's fascinating in the beginning of the, of the ministry of our Savior in Matthew chapter 10, 12 disciples were instructed to go only to the Jews. Matthew 10, 5 through 7. Then 12, these 12 Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not. But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and as ye go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. And just before Jesus was taken up into the clouds, he told his disciples, but ye shall receive power, after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses of me, unto me, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the world. Who's the Samaritan in your world? The fields are still white unto harvest. Will you go out of your way so that others can hear the news of the gospel, the news of salvation? Will you go beyond perceived needs and really meet the needs that people have of knowing they're sinners and knowing they need to trust Christ as Savior? Will you go beyond the one and see the harvest field that's wide and it's white, ready to harvest? Ask God, to broaden the scope of your burden to a world of needy souls. Let's bow for prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this account in scripture that's here not only for us to rejoice that this woman trusted you as Savior and so did others in, this, in the village where she was from, but it gives us hope that if there are any sinners today, they can come and have that well of water springing up into everlasting life within them when they trust Christ as the Messiah, as who he says he is, the God who saves. And it's also here to burden us. And I pray that we will have seen the heart of our Savior for those who are lost. You came to seek and save that which is lost. And I pray that that will be our heart's burden as well. Help us to see individuals around us who need to be born again. Help us to see communities, villages, a world that needs to respond to the gospel. And help us to be faithful out of the command that you've given to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. May we be faithful in doing that. May we see you harvest the souls that are here. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.